0: This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him unrolling it he found the place where it is written the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way.
1: I've uh, been watching with interest and some alarm, it has to be said, the speeches of Donald Trump in the uh, uh, presidential primaries that are happening at the moment. He's certainly a man who divides opinion. I don't know if you've seen any of his statements, Donald Trump. He's the American billionaire who owns Trump Tower in the center of Manhattan. He has uh, said things such as this. When speaking to poor migrants, he said, I know the struggles that you are facing. I face the hard upbringing too. When I started my own business, my first business, my father only loaned me a million (laughs) dollars. He wants to shut the borders of America. He is convinced if he is elected president, heaven help us. He has said this to his uh, electorates, if I get elected president, I'm going to win so many times, you're going to be fed up of winning. He said of the opinion polls recently, I'm so far ahead in the opinion polls, I could go to the centre of New York and shoot someone, and i would still be the top of the opinion polls. He is an outspoken, wealthy American. And whether it be Trump, whether it be Corbyn, whether it be Cameron, closer to home, whenever anyone's on the political path, whenever anyone is seeking to get elected, It's always very, very important to try and listen beneath the spin. To listen to understand who the man or the woman is who's trying to get elected. To understand what their message is. To try and key into their manifesto. That's always important in the electoral race. Now Luke wants us to be in absolutely no doubt about Jesus. He's not running for office. He's the king of the universe. He doesn't need to do that. But Luke at the beginning of the gospel, having established his divinity in chapters 1, 2, and 3, having established his humanity in chapters 3 and into chapter 4, Jesus is just about to start his ministry. And so the next unit of teaching, chapters 4 to chapter 9 of Luke's gospel, Luke begins this section by saying, I want you to be in no doubt about Jesus' identity. And I want you to be in absolutely no doubt about Jesus' mission. That's what this section is about, verses 14 to verse 30. Luke is providing us with Jesus' manifesto, his mission. It's a preview of what will happen in this first section of Luke's gospel, chapters 4 to 9. It's the message that he will preach. It's the mission that he's beginning. It's the manifesto that he wants to teach. But it's also the rejection that he's going to face. And it's all there in verses 14 to 13 of Luke 4. Firstly, Jesus' identity. Jesus' identity. It says there in verse 16 that Jesus was entering familiar territory. He's on the way to his hometown. This is where he grew up. The streets where he ran as a child, he's now walking through as a man. The homes where he, alongside his father, went about mending furniture because Jesus was a carpenter, It's those homes that he's walking by on the way to the synagogue. It's where he would gather every weekend to listen to the teaching of other people, but now he's being asked to teach. It's there in the first verses of our passage. Every weekend, this would happen. The Jews of the society and of the town, in this place, Nazareth, they would gather in the synagogue. One of the elders would be given the scroll, they would open the scroll, it wouldn't be a Bible, it would literally be a huge parchment written on one side, written in Hebrew because it's the Old Testament. And the Hebrew would then be translated into Aramaic because many historians recognise that very few people maintained a good understanding of Hebrew. So the Hebrew was then read, it was then ex- uh, paraphrased or translated into Aramaic and then it would be explained. And that's what's happening here in the first few verses of our passage. It would be read in Hebrew, translated into Aramaic, and then it would be read and explained and expounded. A sermon would be given. And at one point, Jesus, verse 16 and verse 17, is given the scroll from Isaiah. He's asked to read a portion of what we would call the Bible. And he turns to what we have in our Bible as Isaiah chapter 61. He uh, stands to read, he sits to preach or teach. There's an idea. And he says these words, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Here is Jesus with a whole long scroll of Isaiah and he zooms in on these verses deliberately, intentionally because he wants to tell the people who he is. He wants to reveal his identity. And he chooses a passage that refers to somebody called the servant of the Lord. It's this unit of teaching in the book of Isaiah from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 65, somewhere around there. This person, the servant of the Lord, is a mysterious kind of aragon esque figure. Aragorn, that character from a Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, this misty northerner. They're always troublemakers from the north. This misty northerner who, who comes to right everything that is wrong, to bring order, to overthrow all those evil forces, to, abstain, to establish a, a new kingdom that's marked with love and compassion. The Bible speaks of an even greater king whose name is Jesus, he's the servant of the Lord. And it's to this passage that Jesus points to and reads from Isaiah chapter 61. And then he sits down and he gives the shortest sermon ever. There's another idea that I could take heed to. He says, verse 20, with every eye fixed on him, having read it, having been translated into Aramaic, he then sits down to explain the passage, to give a sermon. The eyes are boring into the back of his head. Why have you read that? We know who you are. You're Joseph's son. We saw you, so to speak, kick a football around these streets. You mended my chair leg. You mended that picture frame. You made for me a mirror. And Jesus says this. Today, verse 21, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This scripture is about me. He rolls up the scroll and that's the end of the sermon. But what is interesting as I've looked at this this week is what happens next. He says, I've come for specific people, verse 18. Here are four groups of people that I've come for. I've come to give good news to the poor. I've come to free people who are prisoners. I've come so that the blind people will see. I've come to release those who are oppressed. He's revealing his identity from the Bible his father revealed his son's identity down at the river when he ripped open the heavens and said here is my beloved son whom I love with him I'm well pleased Satan in the temptation narrative we had just last week he sought to challenge Jesus identity in the wilderness and yet here is Jesus saying just as my father revealed my identity now I will also say to you who I am this passage is about me but what happens next? What's their response? It's very interesting. They liked what Jesus said. They're not outraged. They're not saying, who are you to say this? How dare you say that? What did you have for breakfast this morning? They don't say anything like that. Jesus says, I am here. And not one single person is offended. Not one single person stands up to stone him. Not one single person says, how can you claim to be the Messiah? I know your mum and dad. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? How could they hear these words and be enjoying the shortest sermon ever? only because they completely missed the point they completely missed the implications of what he was saying it just like waves kind of washed over them they had a filter they had a way of understanding what Jesus said it says that they thought the religious elite thought Jesus was talking about them they could have thought like this you've come for those who are blind well that could be us we're certainly oppressed under the heel of Rome freedom of prisoners well we feel like we're prisoners because we're just taxed so heavily, we're not living in our own land anymore, it doesn't feel like it. Actually it's really hard, you know, because they're taxing us so much, Jesus, that actually it's really hard to get a meal together. They thought Jesus was talking just to them. And so I'm sure they would have responded, yes, Jesus, let's sign up, let's have some of that. When are you going to liberate us from these Roman taskmasters? They had a grid on so that everything Jesus said washed over their minds. And they thought it applied just to them. They missed the punch in the message. When do we start? Jesus said, I'm the servant of the Lord. I've come to deliver a message of good news so that blind people will see, so that the oppressed people can go free, so that the poor will hear a message of truth and compassion. And they completely missed the point. They were glued to his every word. And Luke does not want us to miss this. And so he says this is Jesus' identity, this is his mission. Jesus Christ has not come from the healthy but for the spiritually sick. Jesus Christ has not come for those who are religious but for those who are on the outside, those on the margins of society. And Jesus is saying you've missed it. Let me explain to you how my salvation works. Let me explain to you who it is that I've come for and it's not for you. That's why verse 25 is there. If we've looked at his identity, let's look at Jesus' mission. He's the servant of the Lord, the promised king. But in verse 25, there's this strange interaction about Elijah and the widow of Zarephath and also Naaman. What's Jesus talking about? These people gathered in the synagogue who knew their Bibles well. Who were gripped on jesus every word they completely missed the point about how jesus saves people and more importantly who he saves and why he came jesus is saying i've come for spiritually poor people you've missed the point let me explain it to you and so in verse 25 he begins with an old testament history lesson here are two characters from israel's history the first one is a poor widow she would be an outsider spiritually she was poor she was a woman so she had very few rights morally she would have been questioned I'm sure and she was a gentile she was a religious outcast, a moral outcast, a spiritual outcast there's no further outcast than this lady here and then you've got the second one if the first person was financially poor the second one was not his name was Naaman Naaman was a wealthy man he was rich he was also a murderer he was also an enemy because of where he came from he puts people in slavery and bondage he was an idol worshiper until he met jesus and he was immoral here we've got two people a poor widow and a rich man but both are outsiders spiritually morally relationally they're as far away from those who heard jesus's words in uh, the synagogue as could possibly be but jesus is saying these are the very people i've come for Those who are outside, those who are on the edges or marginalised in society. Those who are not religiously rich but religiously poor. Those who are literally poor. I've come for people just like that. For the spiritually poor. Very simply, Jesus is saying, religious people, I've not come for you. I've not come for you if you think you know who I am already. I've not come for you if you want me to come and fit into your paradigm and blueprint. I've come for those who are spiritually poor and bankrupt. The only people I come to are the people who understand themselves to be spiritually poor. That's the very people I've come to. Not the healthy, but those who are sick. Not those who think they've got all their ducks in a row, but those who are needy. Those are the people I've come for. That's my mission. Those people who are not valued in society, those are probably the people who will hear the message first. Not those who think they're something. And look how carefully Jesus pushes this again, because they completely missed the point. I don't want you to think that I'm coming also for the spiritually outcasts. Do you notice the word in verse 26 and 27? I'm coming only for those who are spiritually poor. Look at verse 26. It says, Yet Elijah was not sent to any of those people. All those widows that he could have gone to, he wasn't sent to any of those. There were plenty of good people in Israel, Jesus is saying. But God chose to go to a bad person. He chose to go to an outsider. He chose to go to a poor and needy person, not to the synagogue, not to those religious or pharisaical people, you could say. There are plenty of people in the church, plenty of people in the synagogue, plenty of people who knew their Bibles. But who was it that Jesus went to? And he presses it again, verse 27. But he only went to Naaman, the Syrian. He could have gone to anybody, but Jesus only went to the outsider, only went to the spiritually bankrupt, only went to the spiritually needy people. What Jesus is saying is completely radical. He's saying this huge contrast between the people sitting in front of him, the people who come to synagogue every single Sunday, the people who know they Hebrew or not so well, and he's saying, I've not come for people such as you. Unless you can see you're spiritually poor, you will reject me, you will not see your need. I've come for those who are spiritually bankrupt. Only those people who are spiritually poor, only those people who know they have nothing to bring to me, only those people who see they've got nothing to offer me, only those people who see their spiritual poverty, only them, not you. If you can't see your spiritual needs, says Jesus you'll never accept my message. Only those who are on the margins. And when the penny drops, how does the response change? Verse 28. How do those people who understand now, what do they say? All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of the town, they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. In verse 22, they did not understand what Jesus was talking about. They thought they did. Yes, come and liberate us. Yes, come and give us freedom. Yes, help us to see more clearly. But when the penny dropped, verse 28, rather than marvelling at him, verse 22, they want to kill him. Because now they understand what Jesus is saying. Now what is there in this passage for us this morning? I think there's a lot. Here we are as a church, we're 12 weeks old, or thereabouts. And as we begin life together, there's this huge danger in front of us. We need to understand Jesus' identity every single day we look at the Bible. But we need to see clearly Jesus' mission as well, which is why we're gonna spend a year in Luke's Gospel. Here's one of the dangers that we face as a church, to either be evangelical or liberal. Rather than uh, bringing together two opposingly uh, opposite truths or stances, we want to be a church that maintains babli- biblically balanced Christianity, biblically balanced in its mission and understanding. What do I mean? Traditionally, the evangelical church will say, well, this passage, Jesus' main concern is about truth, it's about the gospel, it's about. Uh, knowing the truth and explaining it it's about proclamation what i'm seeking to do this morning that's what jesus is saying is the priority in his mission now that's true i want to die on that hill but we can easily forget that jesus christ also cared for the poor he also fed the hungry there's a danger in the evangelical church that we so spiritualize what jesus says we don't care for people we don't minister to those in need we don't care for the poor the liberal church at the other extreme they can politicise the gospel they can forget the good news of Jesus Christ they can forget the authority of the Bible they can forget and minimise proclamation and truth but they're absolutely brilliant at meeting people's needs so soup kitchens are important Uh, food banks are vital but truth is negotiable they forget verse 18 that when Jesus says he's come to liberate people, the word there is athesis, which is the regular word that Jesus used for forgiveness of guilt and sins and transgressions. The way Jesus liberates people is that he provides forgiveness for sin by his son on the cross. And the great temptation for us is to go into one or two extremes. To either say we're actually a church about truth, or either say we're a church about caring for people's needs. And it seems to me the great challenge we face as we begin life together is whether we will be a church that has in its mind and in its heart and in its actions and convictions Jesus' mission and his message. It's the message of biblically balanced Christianity. Word and deed together. Not one or the other. Wouldn't it be wonderful that in three years' time our reputation as a church was not one or the other but both that we would have a reputation in Epsom and in Yule for mercy for those people who are undeserving, that we cared for the marginalised and the needy in society, just as Jesus did. Word and deed, both. Secondly, if we've looked on the outside, there's an implication for outside about our mission, I think this passage also challenges us on the inside. Back in the summer I read a very interesting book, it's a bestseller, by a French-Canadian called Alain de Botton. It's a book called Status Anxiety. I picked it up for 50p, I wouldn't pay full price. It's a very interesting book because he looks cult- culturally and uh, sociologically about what's happening in the Western world. Alain de Botan says there's a deep uh, unrest in Western society that people are increasingly fed up and anxious about where they fit into society. In a modern uh, situation is unlike the old. An older generation, they say, well, we just want to compare ourselves with the Joneses. Remember that phrase, keeping up with the Joneses? We just want to keep ourselves uh, in parity and par with our next door neighbours. But in the modern world, the temptation and the difficulty is, with the advent of the internet and social media, you compare yourself not just with Mr and Mrs Jones next door, but with millions of people. And this has created a huge uh, unrest in the modern psyche in the Western world. I'm too fat. I'm too thin. I'm too wealthy. I'm too poor. I need a bigger house because they've got a bigger house. My career is not as successful as it could be. I need to be achieving this by this age. I need to be wearing a different label this week than last week. I'm not fit enough. I'm not healthy enough. I've not got enough leisure time that I deserve. My kids are not as successful as they should be. I need to retire in a better place. Have I got enough from my retirement pot? And on and on the list goes. And so you just feel anxious as to where you fit in society because you're comparing yourself with millions. This passage in the Gospel teaches us many things. One of the signs, if not the sign, that God is at work in your life is that you begin to get more humble. Here we have religious people struggling with their pride. They think this passage and this proclamation from Isaiah 61 is all about them and when they do understand that actually Jesus Christ came for the spiritually poor as well as the literally poor they want to throw him off a cliff they want to kill him but one of the signs that God is at work in you is that you become you begin to become less proud and more humble you begin to see the world through new eyes you understand the gospel you understand that you want once a sinner but now you're a sinner saved by grace if you've become a Christian. You were once perhaps financially poor but now you have everything the world uh, longs for in Jesus. You have an inheritance that will never perish spoil or fade. You have hope for the future. Death is not the end. The grave is not to be feared. Whatever your job you can be sure about the future. And paradoxically all these great promises in Jesus about the future, the certainty of heaven, the certainty of forgiveness of the past so you don't wrestle with guilt as much as you used to. It doesn't make you more proud, it makes you more humble. That's one of the signs that God is at work in your life. You can look at anybody and you don't look down at them. Here we are in nice leafy Surrey surrounded by lots of wealth and yet there's also great need in Yule and in Epsom as well. Whether you pass somebody who's begging for money at the station Whether you pass somebody or homes that you are glad you don't live in that postcode locally. Whether you pass an area that you're glad you don't live on that estate or a school that you don't want to send your kids to. Understanding the Gospel makes you more humble. It understands your need. And so you can say, apart from being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, I would be just like that person spiritually before God. It humbles you and also exalts you at the same time. Becoming more mature in your faith means that you don't look down on people but actually you look down on them only in compassion and thinking how can I show mercy to them? Your identity doesn't come from social status in any way. It comes from who you are in Jesus. And the fact, praise God, that at one point in your life somebody shared the good news about Jesus with you and that God drew you to himself Drew you out of spiritual poverty to spiritual wealth in Jesus. There was a man called Nathan Cole. He uh, grew up in Connecticut. He was an illiterate farmer in the American Great Awakening. And he sat under the ministry of an English preacher, perhaps the greatest preacher ever, called George Whitfield. And he heard this man's ministry. And he responded, and it was recorded at a later date, Nathan Cole said these words. My hearing Mr Whitfield preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing my old foundation was broken up. And I saw that my righteousness would not save me. What's Cole saying? What happened? By God's grace Nathan Cole was humbled by the gospel. He saw his spiritual poverty. He thought he had everything. He was a religious and a righteous man but then he saw his need, and that his need could only be met in Jesus. And that's the message of the Gospel. Heaven's son became Joseph's son, so that we might become the children of God. That's the Gospel, that's the good news. He had to empty himself, he had to become poor, that thou who was rich beyond all splendour, all for love's sake, becamest poor and becamest man for our sake. That's the only way that the Lord Jesus, heaven's son, could become a channel for the gospel. That he could begin his ministry, that he could save the people for his own precious possession. And that's why Jesus stood up in front of people who knew him and read these words. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor. Let's pray together. Father we always want to divide what your word so often keeps together. It's easy to understand this as either you saying you want us to care for financially poor people or to pray and minister the gospel to spiritually needy people. But the gospel says both. And I pray that you would help me and help us to keep both together. To pray in earnest that blindness would be replaced by spiritual sight. To pray in earnest that Poverty and injustice would be replaced. Father, we pray that you would help us to be biblically balanced in our understanding of the gospel. That as we journey and continue to journey through Luke's gospel, it would become good news again to our hearts and that we would pray for people, but we would also seek to practically minister to those in need in our locality. Please help us to see and remind us that Us as a church, we're not about a location. We're not about an address. But we are a family that has a great calling and a great mission that we cannot complete ourselves. So please help us to heed your identity and your message in Jesus and to proclaim good news to those who are spiritually bankrupt. And yet, in this area at least, think they have so much. Amen.